Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they are facing. I'm Rachel Connolly from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, helping businesses connect with top tech talent, and today I am your host. Today we're going to be discussing the topic of building autonomous teams and the challenges involved. I am joined by Bjorn Madsen from Dematic, Simon Stapleton from Truthsayers, Daniel Winterstein from Goodloop and Stuart Pavitt from MRN Global. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. So Bjorn, if you'd like to kick us off. Oh, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, my name is Bjorn uh, Madsen. I work at uh, Dematic as head of system design tools, and um, I am kind of the lead of a handful of engineers who build um, tools that roughly 400 data scientists, they then exploit to build and design the logistics and warehouse solutions for tomorrow. Perfect. Thanks, Bjorn. Simon, can we come to you next? Yeah. Hi. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, my name is Simon Stapleton. I'm chief exec of Truthsayers. We provide a tool uh, to large organizations predominantly so they can measure how people really feel about their employees. And we cover off subjects like engagement, retention, transformational change, those kind of things. I'm also the CTO, and so uh, most of our uh, development is done offshore. So I, I do work with a lot of autonomous teams. And um, when we get into it, you'll understand why the question I, I'm going to ask is, is really important to me. Thanks, Simon. Dan, can we come to you next? Hello, I'm Daniel Winterstein. I'm the co-founder and another CTO, CTO of Goodloop. We deliver ethical and effective advertising which works on the basis that most people don't want adverts, but these are optional. Pick a charity, watch an ad. Um, the brand donates to your charity, everyone benefits. Um, I am originally a mathematician, then I came to Edinburgh to study AI, um, was a researcher here for a bit, then fell off the academic wagon into being an entrepreneur. I uh, was a mathematician for hire and product designer. Um, Eventually, by a winding road, led me into advertising and good loop, and I uh, lead the product and technology team here. My favorite color is blue, and my favorite amphibian is the European common frog. Thanks, Dan. Um, finally, Stuart, welcome to you. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'll follow Dan if I can. Um, I'm Stuart Abbott, CTO of MM Global. Uh, yeah, I've had a more traditional route, I think, than Dan to CTO. I started the left uni in 2006 from Napier in Edinburgh, also Edinburgh-based. Uh, worked my way through software development, senior software development lead, uh, you know, all the way up through technical architecture. Now I'm CTO of MM Global. MM Global do direct print marketing for the alcohol industry. Um, and yeah, we have a team of 20 devs and we are... I would say our sort of team ethos and team uh, values are empowerment, delegation, and trust. So yeah, really looking forward to the discussion. Perfect. Thank you, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast.
now that we're all introduced, let's move on to the topic and focus. So you all have a question or statement on building autonomous teams and the challenges involved. As usual, I'm going to work my way around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. Each of you will then have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So Bjorn, we'll start with you. One of the first things we wanted to discuss was um, how to set up a team for success and turning the old way of working on its head. Um, do you want to give us some context around that and then we can delve into the topic a little, little bit deeper? Sure. Uh, I, as, as you mentioned there, I think a key challenge for uh, building autonomous teams is how to set the team up for success. Um, today, software development requires that people know so much that it's not a single man who can go out and deploy an app in practice, not something that scales. It's a team sport. So the old ways of working were normally where the developers, they would, you know, address some business problem and then they would build it with a mess of, I don't know, Ruby scripts, some Fortran, some C and glue it together with some Python. And then they would hand it over to, you know, the, the DevOps team and say, ops, now please go and run it. And ops, they would say, oh, wait a minute, we don't have documentation or maybe, you know, it's incomplete. Uh, we don't know what versions you need this software to run on in the various programming languages you used. And by the way, that SQLite database that you decided to use as backend doesn't scale, so we need to exchange it for something more sensible, right? And then time starts ticking, and then this little autonomous team that just did a good job of doing development, they start to get dragged into operations, and it takes three months until the, uh, the application is on, the service actually gets deployed. So. Um, I recognized this based on beta experiences that it was time to turn this problem on its head. So we practically took the dev side and moved it up front. So unless um, it, when business comes and says, we have a business problem we would like to solve. And then the dev team says, all right, this is an interesting problem. The first question they answer is what they're going to build it in. Are they going to build it in C and Python and JavaScript or whatever? because then they use a pipeline that's already been established by the DevOps team. And, and this pipeline allows you then to go and just clone a project and then run it. And when you, you, know, you fill in your modules, you fit in your test suite, you fill in your tutorials so other developers can figure out what goes on and how to use it. And that's it. Once you commit and push, the pipeline takes care of the rest. It deploys it. It checks out that it gets associated with the right type cloud storage uh, networks are sorted out, the um, authentication is sorted out, billing is sorted out, everything just works straight off a template. And this allowed, for example, my teams to go from taking a much longer time to being able to release services every three or four days. So this is when I, what I say when I mean, how do we set our teams, our remote teams work on specific problems off for success? One of the techniques, which are straightforward there, is to give them templates with pipelines that just makes it possible to, you know, focus on the value-adding bit and then go straight to production. And I guys, I love it. Uh, I don't have a name for it, so maybe that's my my question to the team. What do you call this way of working? Um, it's like every single methodology we have nowadays needs to have a fancy acronym. So. I'll, I'll leave it for the for the creativity of, of the, the uh, my colleagues here on the call. Um, but yeah, I, I think the question to you guys is, have you also started to turn the uh, development process on its head and go in with dev first and then build for ops rather than build and then ops needs to figure out how to deploy? Yeah, I'd say it takes a level of maturity to get to the point you, you're up beyond that where you know 
what the target environment has, you know, all the variables that are, that are possible and uh, you can contract against. And then you can set up these these templates. And actually, I'm sure you're the envy of many people in your peer group to be able to get, get to that point. Um, so I, I think to answer your question, at least from my perspective, I, I would say is to, is to be able to define what maturity looks like and to be able to describe a, a future place where people can buy into and strive towards because otherwise um you know you can never do enough today and, and to try and also fix for the future is, is asking a lot of people unless they were to have bought into the vision that you that and the benefits more so of what you're trying to create perfect thanks simon dan can we come to you your thoughts on that okay um so i always think uh in terms of iterative processes feedback loops and changing what you do and you the most important thing i think for um the members of the team is that we all share an understanding of what success is on this project and what my part of that is and once we've got that great we can now we're now empowered to do our thing but the other thing we know is unless it's um i mean if you have the thing if it's a nice cut and dried we've done this 10 times before brilliant but more often for us it's at least some element of fresh ground so part of that is knowing right this plan we've got it's not going to be the best plan it's going to change part of the plan is how are we going to um the cadence and the method by which we're going to get together and go let's change the plan right now we all understand maybe the success maybe the goalposts have moved um we're all behind the new goalposts maybe our roles have changed a bit we all understand that let's keep moving thanks Dan. let me pass the baton on to Stuart. thanks Dan. yeah i i think I think for me, Bjorn, what you really described is um, a process of continual improvement. You know, this idea, you know, it's great that, you know, with developers, if we can find repeatable, repeatable places, which is processes and templates, it just takes the noise out of development. It, it removes frustration, it removes disagreements, it just allows people to focus on solving the problems at the hand. So, yeah, for me, it's continual improvement. And I think we are. MIM Global are quite similar. So when I started a year ago, uh, you know, we had we had issues with deployments and releases, as I think a lot of organisations do. And it, it took a year, but we now are in a position where we do daily deployments and release every couple of days, and we can release more. But how we got there was a process of continual improvement. It wasn't just, you know, we just didn't do one thing. I think we did maybe 150 things over the year, 150 small things that had to happen. And a certain, you know, we had to tweak everything as we went, just as a process, continual improvement, until suddenly it was like, we have daily deployments, everybody celebrate. So success sometimes, and I agree with Dan, it is setting up success and when you're iterating through and you're, you're delivering each sprint, you're delivering each iteration. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's good feelings and success is really important about delivering for the customer requirements and the business and all that. But you've got to have a long-term strategy. You've got to be getting people towards a long-term goal. So yeah, um, I think that, that for me, so I would call it continual improvement because it feels that that's what you're doing. It's a mixture of cross-functional teams, DevOps. It all seems good. I think there's, there's a small danger, which is if you give people too many processes and you feel that they're driven by process, then the problem is they start, every, everything starts looking like a hammer and nail rather than the right tool. You know, that's where you get too much use of an SQL database, but maybe you should have jumped to a NoSQL. That's the danger. But I think that's where also delegation, empowerment, and trust. You've got to be trusting the guys in the ground to be making the best decisions. And you can't have autonomous teams without delegation, empowerment, and trust. So 
that's yeah no who the hell I think I think you have a good point there on saying that it's a technology that you need to have available for a template to work isn't there but then you just you know take the hammer and nail approach yes then life becomes not so good uh, but I think the nice thing is that the business understands that it goes in and works with the basic idea that if the pipeline's not fit for purpose, then let's build a pipeline that is fit for purpose before we then commit to development. And normally that can then be a slight parallel initial work piece, but when that parallel you know part goes then ready, awesome stuff. So good good point to add that into it. And I think TQM is a good name for it because that's also how I see it from a, both a, like a, a supply chain perspective. It's a bit like the Toyota model of software. Thank you, Stuart. Simon, we'll come to you next with your question. So one of the things you wanted to discuss was um, some ideas around performance-based outcomes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, my question to the panel was is really around um, how leaders and those commissioning services from autonomous teams in a broad sense, how can they be more assured around the, the mental health and the well-being of the people in those autonomous teams that are not subject to such close supervision um, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I, I talked from a personal example where, not, not in my current role, but in the previous role where I'd um, we, we commissioned some work from uh, a team we've been working with in South Africa for quite some time. And uh, it was only quite late in the day when we were expecting a release that a few of the team had, had experienced burnout and essentially... Uh, we missed our delivery because of the the, the mental well-being of the, the people on on the ground um, in South Africa, and that was a real hard lesson for me. And it's something that's become quite important, and particularly in my current role around um, supporting well-being programs. So I just wanted to ask what the team, what what do you do um, to to, uh, to protect the the needs of the people working in your teams? Right, first man, uh, I think. Uh, all of my developers, they work remote uh, globally. So we are all distributed various corners of the planet. And um, I, I think a very important step is, of course, to uh, make sure that uh, they don't commit to more than they can. Um, and, and that's that's the first element. The second thing is always to have a team working on a service or a package, not just a single person, so that there's always somebody to to help and talk with. Um, we don't have any meetings during the week. We have our Friday brag where uh, it is encouraged that everybody shows off what they've done and what they think is really cool that's worth sharing with the team. Uh, it's kind of a, a voluntary form of reporting because during the week we might launch multiple services and get things done. And in that way, um, I think sharing the success that comes is becomes a fluent process. Um, we have adopted the a mentality from the special forces where it's always the best man for the job. So if you are interested in something and you're the only person who can do it, okay, then there is no other options. If another person would like to do it and is uh, very capable but hasn't done something like that, then set them up to work together. And again, if the best man has too much to work on, then take the, the second who's in the next alternative. Now, a very important thing in the way that we manage our workload is that we don't just give people tickets, which can be common, you know, just spamming people with tickets of stuff that needs to be done. We give people more overarching tasks where they take ownership. 
ownership. Build this service as a whole. Don't just, you know, work on a couple of tickets. And this form of ownership also takes a lot of stress out because people no longer just sit and look at the tiny little picture that they are supposed to get something to work with, but they maintain an overview of the whole task. So uh, with that ownership also comes a better judgment of how much time things will take. And by keeping tasks small, that's in my responsibility, um, life becomes very, very pleasant and very productive. And a very important thing for us is not creating a like a hostile competitive environment with who's got the highest you know productivity numbers here or there. It's more about saying, okay, you got idle time. You know what the team is working on. Where do you think that you can add the maximum utility for the greater number of people? And that's the one that we keep going back to, the maximum utility for the greater number of people. Because when you ask any individual that, if they don't know, then let them talk with the colleagues and get a feeling with it. Because just this kind of certainty takes an enormous amount of stress array, rather compared to if you're just trying, every time you see a new ticket, you rush to finish it because you believe you're the bottleneck. If you're not the bottleneck, don't feel the pressure and we should contribute to that. Dan, if we come to you next on Simon's thoughts. Oh, thanks, Simon, for a question about well-being and burnout, because it's a really important issue. Um, I wish I had a magic bullet. We have a range of ways where we're, we've got multiple feedback channels for hearing from the team. So there's a few different ways that someone can say something's up. Um, got like one-to-ones with their manager. There's also a weekly survey where they can say, this is my mood. Um, and then there's also an anonymous channel where they can put in things. So we're trying to make it easy for different types of people to be able to say when there's an issue. Um, but if, and that work, and that helps, but uh, it doesn't cover everything. And then there's, I think, um, breaking down big tasks into little tasks, which uh, Bjorn, you were saying as well, that is really useful for um, it makes them less intimidating. And it means that um, if something goes wrong, failure becomes less of a, a catastrophe and a problem. And that's something you want to do. You want to make uh, you want to make it okay for people to try something and fail in some way, get stuck or go down the wrong yeah. route. Mm. So um, our approach to that is to try and uh, turn, the, turn the big tasks into little tasks and be understanding if things go awry. Thanks, Dan. Stuart, can we get your thoughts on it? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's a great question. I think you know. I think we should all be aware of mental health. Uh, you know, most you know we know men have issues with mental health. Well, you know, so it's really important. Engineering is is dominated by males, so it is an issue for us all. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different answer. I suppose I think I think it actually starts with your hiring policy and your processes. I think one of the most important things is, I mean. You know, we talk about, you know, we talk about hiring, you know, trying to get higher great developers or great people or whatever. But for me, it's always about attitude and adaptability. If you're hiring for attitude and adaptability, one of the hiring questions we always do is, do we want to hang out with the person? You know, do we like, you know, and we're not trying to make a plate, but we're trying to really find, does this person like us? Do they like the way we interact? You know, so showing them who we are, you know, it, you know, we're all different, but there's a new place there. So really making an open environment where people can come and be really sort of relaxed and helpful because that make that, you know, just being around and not feeling like the outside or not feeling apart is really important to me that I met my first job post my first full remote job. And for the first time in my life I really struggled with 
imposter syndrome and I had issues of like really just feeling like I didn't really know anyone or get with him because I'd never worked remote and that feeling of isolation. So it's here, it's there. You know, it's it's really important when we're hiring new people that we just get people and we make them feel part of the team as soon as possible. But we also have to be open. So one of the things we do is we don't have a dictated a schedule of one-to-ones with the manager. Everyone has the one-to-one that suits them and they can talk about anything. It's always open for your judgment. I mean, I know for a fact some of my team talk about the sort of rugby results and the football results and that's all they need. That's what they want to do, you know. Uh, others talk about the career a lot more and some talk about some of the work and some of the stresses and strains uh, but it's really just making sure that we have that some of the other things I think really help is especially in remote uh, I mean we're really lucky that we've got teams and slack whatever you're doing in video conferencing I think that really helps just we always constantly mean people that you know we exist outside this square square that we mostly see each other we exist outside so it's always nice to sort of find out what the person's doing at the weekend or, you know, what they've been up to or, or just get a little bit more glimpse of who they are because it just fills them in, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, and then just on day-to-day stuff, it's it's all the stuff that we know that you guys have all mentioned, you know, it's removing the impediments to process, uh, pro, impediments to process, impediments to progress. Um, it's ownership, it's giving people a good sense that they are in control of their destiny, that they're valued, that cared for, you know, as CTO, I, I try and talk to a lot of my devs as much as possible. I, I often don't, but I'm always asking after them of when, you know, I'll turn up to, you know, whenever I get a chance, I like to talk to them and, you know, make them laugh and, you know, just, just you know, demonstrate that they are important to me personally and professionally because that's how you build a big team culture. And culture will always come from the top. So you have to make, you know, our culture is dictated by our exec team. You know, we've got Craig, Betty and Susan, myself, Rob, from then down, everywhere down it's always about the team first and you know the success we get uh, it, you know we're just that that comes from that just pushing everyone forward so perfect thanks everyone some really interesting um answers to your question there simon i'm sure you probably agree with a lot of those points as well um was there anything else you wanted to add on that at all simon no it's really interesting hearing hearing the views of the the team and, and particularly it's 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 um i'm hearing a mix between setting up systems and also being open for any kind of conversation or support uh, required and you know i think through the the combination of you mean you used to call it an open door policy right it's it's, it's where anyone can go in and talk about anything and and sometimes that's all it needs for somebody to feel that they've got a place to go and some support but it's also putting in the systems in place where people know that there is the support. There's there's um, a, a means to talk about the, the amount of work you've got on your shoulders, or whether you're going in the right direction. And believe me, there's there's a there can be a lot of stress for somebody if they feel that their career is not going in the right direction. You know, so so really a combination of those two and, and spot on, guys. Thanks for your points, and it's really helpful. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. We'll move on to Dan. Um, so Dan, one of the the first questions you had was around leading a team to hitting or missing goals and, and what's involved around that as well. So first of all, do you just want to give us a little bit of context behind that question? Um, the Oh, I, I, I've been uh, doing this for a while and made so many mistakes. Um, I won't even try and list them, but I'm always interested to learn more about, right, these are, the, these are how I work in this situation such that 
we're going to hit our goals and we're going to come out of this with the team will feel good and delivered versus the um that sometimes we don't always get it right um a project overruns and what is it we can learn as managers to uh increase our chance of success and our team's chance of success thanks dan uh, Stuart, we come to you first on that one. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I think, I think the the when you were talking, Daniel, the one thing I was thinking about is the thing about plans is they do two things: they change or they fail. And I think, and and it's you know it, it's a trope, and we've all said it, but the reality is it's true. And because I think one of the things we have to do is set our teams up to is to really be okay with the plan changing. You know, you'll set a goal, and sometimes the goal is unachievable, and it's that. It's having that flexibility in the management to move that goal and being able to take the team with you. And, um, you know, sometimes they'll have a reach and, and, and achieve it and sometimes they won't. But it's also how you deal with that after, you know. I think there always has to be a little bit of, and again, we'll talk, you know, this goes back to mental health and building a sort of sustainable development team and making them feel empowered. And, you know, you have to be able to just deal with failure. So I think fail, failing fast comes in as well. And knowing that if you can't, it's really just getting up in front of, getting out in front of the communication, you know, challenges and making sure that everyone feels that, you know, failure isn't the end of the world. Because often it's not, I'm sure sometimes it is, but more than not, you know, it's really just trying to uh, do that. And yeah, I think another thing I always say to my, my team is projects fail for two reasons, communication, rules and responsibilities, is making sure everybody understands what they're doing, what they need to do and what it define success but making sure people are communicating correctly you know like a constant stream of communication and or you know however people like to communicate making sure that communication channel getting the unplanned work impediments to process getting them all impediments to progress getting them all just out the way so that we continue to work and, and give us a, as you know all of us a great chance of success as we can so yeah thanks Stuart uh, Simon can we come to you next yeah, Dan, I was really pleased when I saw you'd ask this question um, because it's something that um, I could talk about what we do in, in Truth Sayers. Because uh, essentially what we do is, is measure the difference between what people say and how they really feel, which are often very different. And in fact, actually, our data would say 60% of answers you receive as a manager have been um, cognitively biased to be appear slightly better than they are. Uh, the, the exceptions we'd get is when you ask someone if they're being paid enough. We all know what, what answers you get from that question. Um, <clears throat> so the, the difference in what people say and how they feel, we, we call that cognitive dissonance. But actually, we all experience it. We all experience it probably in every day of our lives that we, we say one thing and we mean something slightly different, something ever so slightly different, and that's enough. If you see the application effect of, of many, many um, overstatements across the project team, and it's it's likely that you you'll get the, the great news that you want, but actually you won't get the truth. And I think when it comes to all the tiny delays in a process, in output, in productivity, and people are asked, "Are you on track?" Uh, social desirability bias, and, and probably not wanting to get um, head dryer in your face from your manager. People say, "Yeah, everything's fine. Don't worry. You know, we, we're on track." And actually, it's when it's when you get to that tipping point. And, and the whole thing collapses. Now, I'm not. I'm not talking. That's true for everyone. I'm just saying that that I know that that um, that phenomenon exists in everyone. The the ability to maybe put a little bit of tar, um, polish on what you're saying. Thanks, Simon. 
Beyond your team to hitting or missing goals, I would say through acceptance testing. Right, the only the only person who's actually interested in deliverables, it's not how you do it, is not except when it's designed, it's not what it looks like, you know, as a code as such. So the only thing I think is interesting in terms of hitting goals is, can you break down your user, user acceptance test into a clear list of test-driven development activities that needs to be delivered? And if you've got that, it can't go wrong. It simply can't. It, it hasn't done for the last five years for me, not a single time. Um, the only thing I think that then, you know, based on building autonomous teams and makes it even better is when you go and you say managers, they do code review as well, because it's very quickly and quick exercise as a manager to go through the latest commits, read through them and see, are these having a clear organization? Does this look like targeted effort or are the developers actually struggling to interpret whatever data they were handled over from? some business manager and are trying to develop against. So if the developers all sign off on the user acceptance test and collectively break it down into test-driven development sprints, as short, the shorter, the better, you'll end the whole run. You won't miss, miss any goals. Effect. Thanks, everyone. Dan, does that kind of answer? Do you agree with those thoughts? Have you got anything, anything to add? I think good points from all of you. Thank you very much. I'm a big fan, Bjorn, of this kind of test-driven approach. Um, and Stuart, yeah, your point's spot on. And Simon, really interesting that, um, uh, yeah, that how we tune ourselves and therefore lead us and our, uh, us as astray and how we can avoid that. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. So um, next, Stuart, we'll move on to your question. So one of the ones you wanted to ask was um, around communication and reporting challenges. Um do you want to just give us a little bit of context around that question? Sure. So I think autonomous teams, one of the things we all have to accept about autonomous teams is they'll work differently. Yeah, if you force people to work the same way, then you're putting the process above the people. And then you're, you're never getting you're never getting the, the full optimum. You're not allowing that team to be as good as they can be because you're enforcing foreign policy, uh, foreign process on them. So, but what this does is it creates communication reporting challenges. One of the interesting things with Sprint Scrum is everybody talks about being agile, but 97, 95, 97% of teams I've ever heard of run a two-week sprint. So it feels like that's just the norm. Maybe that doesn't need to change, but I think what that points to is, you know, if you really have autonomous teams, they will pick a different iteration cycle, pick different processes, pick different frameworks, they will pick different tools. And what that does is that if they're all working differently, that will create reporting communication challenges up. And it's really important as a manager to say, oh, this is really difficult for me. I will just enforce uniformity because then it makes it easier for me. But then you're back to the problem of enforcing people to work in a less optimal way. So I'm really interested in the group sort of feeling on, is that balance there or is that as a manager, you just have to accept or what are the, you know, what ways of then, you know, as, as each member found dealing with that. So. Over to John. Yeah. I think autonomy automatically implies that the team decides what they do, how they work, and the comfort of the manager is secondary to their productivity. As I said earlier, I strive to communicate the ethos of how do we provide the maximum utility for the greater number of people. And 
autonomous teams, um, they are key in, in, in delivering that because it also means that if I trust them and if they've delivered before and that I know that they are a team in the meaning that they can collaborate to get things done, then I don't need to doubt their understanding of where their efforts are taking them in the long run. They know that. They know what they're delivering towards. And we've all agreed on the user acceptance test. So, yeah, I would say contrary to, to classical management thinking, it's not about controlling the team. Autonomous team means unleash them. Let them do what they do best. God, I, I just before I say, I couldn't agree more. I, I, yeah, that's exactly, I think, how I, I feel. So, yeah, it's good to hear Kendra's spirit. So, sorry, I'll jump later. Simon, do you want to see you next? Yeah, um... This question reminded me of uh, the iceberg of ignorance. So I don't know if you've, you've heard of that, where 100% of information you need to know is on the shop floor and only 4% gets to the, the, the t- very, very senior level. And um, uh, information that can mean the difference between catastrophe or, or you know complete success and so, yeah, you got to think what's going wrong there. And and often the traditional model it's it's a, it's a very um, as it might sound pyramid based, where you've got information flowing upwards and it gets filtered and probably embellished, etc., until it gets to the top and and you you've got everything turns green on a status report. Um, <clears throat> I think what what's really important in in autonomous teams is actually to to find your balance through some experience. Now, when I've done it before, I, I started off working with that team, actually asking for everything, and and I'll choose what's what's relevant to me. And also, there'll be things that the team produce that they don't feel becomes relevant, and it it, it becomes optimized just through um, continuing continuing improvement on what's communicated. I think when you've got autonomous teams that are working with processes and systems that they're also um, choosing and optimizing themselves. You never really know what's the, the best information, the most relevant information you need to you need to communicate with, unless you decide you don't want it, rather than you opt out, rather than you opt in. And for me, that that really worked. Is is just get a load of stuff. It's painful at first, but uh, opt out of what what I think it wasn't particularly necessary. Thanks, Simon. Dan, anything to add on that? Uh, it's a good question. Don't have anything to add. I'm going to echo Bjorn a bit when he said that um, process is not there for the manager's benefit. And I think process, we want to think about process being um, there to actually empower the uh, team uh, um, and to enable autonomy. So you want the le- as little process as possible. And what it's there for is to let people work together as a team effectively. So all your rules and ways of doing things, um, take a, a, a paring knife to them, look at them regularly, get the input flowing up from uh, the shop floor as to what's working for them and what's not, and look at it as a, right, um, I do have things like you you are said uh, sprint cycles as a specific one. Um, yeah, we do want some coordination because that's what's going to allow um, me to work smoothly with the person next to me but we don't want too much because we want everyone to have the freedom to be able to set their own pace, to be able to focus when they need to focus. So I think it's a balancing act, as Simon said, and um, and the balance is going to be different for different situations. Perfect. Thanks, everyone, Stuart. Just to, to run back to you on that, does that kind of 
um, bring any extra thoughts in, into your mind? Have you got anything else to add on that? It does, yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. everyone. I think they're really good points. I think my last my last thought is two things. Is um, One of the things about delegation is uh, if you think about, you know, you'll have a team of six or seven or 20 or 50 or 100, and, you know, there's only, you know, there might be one person. And if you're not delegating, if you're not creating autonomous, what you're creating is a logjam and a bottleneck. And that logjam and bottleneck is because people are asking the person above them questions. And I think that's one of the other ways that we should really think about autonomous teams is when we see, you know, the challenges of reporting and communication, you know, is partly because they're either not making the rights, you know, they don't feel empowered to make the decisions or they're not feeling empowered to communicate. So, I mean, one of the things I often do is if I ever get called into a meeting with my developers and I'm like, oh, can we do this? So, and it's like, yes, you're empowered to do it. It's don't don't ask, do you know? Per, you know, permission is easier than forgiveness. Oh, sorry, for, forgiveness over permission. So, uh, I think that's really it. It's just it's empowering as many different ways as possible. They're empowered to work, empowered to make decisions. And I think if we do that, then the communication and the reporting challenges there, as Simon said, they'll report what's important to them. Because they are the ones in charge, we should be supporting them, as John said. So yeah, great points from everyone. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's just come in that a lot of people confuse delegation with abdication, uh, and actually, you know, delegation there's still a, a massive accountability on the on the person who is delegating to provide the support to um, communicate upwards and downwards. Um, and it's not a case of they go go and fill your boots uh, and, and tell me what you've done in a month's time. You know that that would be true abdication and and that that level of um, distance. Even though some people will find that quite um, appealing, actually, it's not particularly good for for a conducive t- team and supportive environment. Yeah. Absolutely. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Probably got time for one more question. Um, one of the most relevant ones with the being holiday season. Dan, you asked that when you were on holiday, what don't you worry about and why? Do you want to kick us off with that one? All right. Let's coming from the um, uh, in computing. There's a saying that a good computer scientist is a lazy one, and a a specific type of lazy, the sort of person who will um, actually stay up all night to get things right rather than slog away um so it's that what you get what are the things that you've got right so that when you go on holiday you know your team that team is just going to be doing brilliant without you uh, and i think for autonomous teams that's one of my measures of have i have i got it set up right can i yeah. can i walk away and trust them thanks dan uh stuart welcome to your not first oh, i was hoping i was again uh, yeah and so uh, i i think it think it's echoing what we've all done you know it's it's if you do have delegation and trust and empowerment and accountability as well then you should be able to walk away but you know if we're struggling to walk away so the things that i think we were most i was most concerned when i joined role compared to now is uh you know the deployment process the release process just making sure that the guys can continually release their code continually see value continually uh just feel empowered that doesn't keep me up at night uh, you know, like it's technical things like resilient architecture, just architecting the system correctly. So you've got, you know, horizontal scaling, vertical scaling, you know, we've got that. That doesn't keep me up at night. You know, it's everything. And it's not just holidays. It's also like, it's it's always the laziness of, I don't want to be woken up at 3 a.m. So it's the entire process of, you know, and I think, um, but it also comes down to, you know, 
building really great relationships with my team so that they know they can call me in an emergency, but they don't need to. And knowing that, you know, there's been enough education and training and push that knowledge down into their level so they feel empowered to act means that I can go. And I'm just back from two tolerance, so and they didn't call me and had a fantastic time. So yeah, I think it just it, it just flows all the way into autonomous as well. But yeah. Thanks, Stuart. Beyond, do you worry about anything when you're away? I only worry about shit under stealing my people. <laughs> because from from a both a mental health perspective and from a coordination perspective and from a delivery perspective, my teams they operate truly autonomously. They do their own planning. They 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 sign up. We I present, you know, if if I am am giving them a task, I take to the whole team and say, Hey, listen, here are all the things we need to get get done. Here are some problems I need to solve. Here are some specific tasks which we're looking at who signs up for them. And then they select the task and through that they form the team who wants to work on it. They got skills and so on. So in this way they've signed up for the task and now I just ask them to coordinate it because they know the user acceptance tests. They break it down and say what the development plan looks like. So they they also plan their own holidays. I don't need to be involved in that. They sort that out themselves. Um, and, and that gives me uh, an, an, a very relaxed you know, view to, to this because they're mature enough to solve their own problems. They're adults. We don't hire children. It's called a workplace for a reason. It's not a school. Right? It's, it's, we deliver results and we do that under the, the freedom and responsibility that sits with it. So I'm, 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 the only thing that worries me are headhunters that wants to steal my people. <laughs> Hopefully that wasn't aimed at me. <laughs> um, Simon, can we go to you next on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's two things that, that I could choose to worry about. One is meeting our SLAs with our, with our partners. And so that's about just standard availability of our platform and whether it's performing to their requirements. And secondly, if we are able to release when we told our customers we would release. And for the first one, pretty much everything is automated and self-healing. So actually, I, I know I can take a week off and not worry about whether we're actually continuing to deliver service to our partners. Um, and so much so that we've never had any uh, with a, uh, that's been any longer than uh, 10 minutes, actually. And, and so that's cool. The second bit, releasing on time. Well, we, we always contract with our partners that will actually deliver two weeks after our um, forecast date. So it gives us a couple of weeks leeway. And because we are SAF platform, we tend to control the release cycle. We control the backlog. This uh, was never actually direct commission software. It's just the release of software into their environments. So as far as we're concerned, we have plenty fat in the plan so that if I'm away and it doesn't go quite to plan, then we know we've got, we've got a little bit of time to catch up. Probably quite a blase way of looking at things, but actually we're able to build that that kind of way of working in right up front when we're contracting with with partners. Uh, and and you know everyone waiting is great. Thanks, Simon and Dan. If we just finally come back to you on on that point that you'd raised initially, if you got kind of anything to add on that now, or thanks. I think I will be echoing what um, other people said. Um, Stuart, you mentioned releases, and that's one when I think of ten years ago releases and devops used to keep me up at night and now um uh i i love my devop team 
they um i have not the slightest doubt that everything will work perfectly um and that they are empowered to keep the systems in a good state and um and uh, and that they'll keep it working and also that they are uh, i think one of the things we got right there is um kind of good underpinning technology with resilient technology uh, and also good underpinning documentation got a good habit there of document as you go so that um even if even if we've got like something new there's been a change in how we do things um the that's as those changes are being made that knowledge is being shared and put down so that um so that people um anyone in the devops team can take their holiday and know that yep it's solid it's going to keep working Perfect. Thanks, everyone. I think just timings-wise, we'll leave it there. So um, that was today's Evolution Exchange podcast. Our thanks to all our guests for joining us today and sharing their views with us. We'd like to thank you for listening and hope you can join us again next time.